Welcome to Light for the Journey, a podcast of Russell Memorial United Methodist Church. Each week, we open the scriptures in faith that the timeless truth of God will guide us as we seek to follow in the steps of Jesus. This week's message comes from United Methodist Women Sunday and is given by one of our United Methodist women, Carol Miracle. In this message, she traces the ways we are supposed to grow in our faith throughout our lives, having different relationships with God based on the relationships we develop in our communities. As we go to our message today, let's open our hearts and minds to the truth that God would speak to us. Our next scripture reading is going to be from the book of John. First John, I'm sorry. Um, I've got to confess that pretty much the ideas and the thoughts I had from this sermon aren't, aren't original thoughts with me. Um, if you're listening or you're here and you, you were part of the New Disciples Sunday School class, we did a uh, Tony Evans series about three years ago, maybe a little bit more, called Followers, Not Fans. And it, it touched me deeply. Um, I'm the discipleship discipleship chair on the administrative council and basically that means I work with Dave and the church and we talk about ways to help disciple people Um, and this followers not fans series stressed stressed the same thing that as um, disciples of Jesus Christ we have a responsibility to make other disciples it doesn't matter that you're not the preacher or that you're not a Sunday school teacher Um, we all have that responsibility this spiritually. And so some of the illustrations I'm using are going to be familiar to some of you because you watched that series with me. I think Tony Evans was, um, communicates the word in a really effective way. He uses very vivid um, word pictures to describe a lot of things, and I've borrowed a couple of those from him today. Let's pray first before I read from God's word. God, we thank you again for the opportunity to come, the opportunity to speak your word um, to a world that is hurting, to a world that's confused, and to a world that's pretty much in chaos. And God, I just pray that it is your word spoken today, that it's the word we hear, and that that it's the word you intended for us to hear today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 1 John chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 12. It says, um, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I'm going to back up a little bit and go back to the first scripture reference for a few minutes. Jesus is addressing, um, back at the end of Matthew chapter 28, he's addressing um, the 11 and possibly more people, depending upon which gospel account you read of of Jesus' last words to the the disciples. He gives the Great Commission in a couple of different forms. Um, But as he's saying, he says to them that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Um, All. That means, that means all. Every single bit of it has been given to him. 
the word authority, and um, I got this again from the Tony Evans sermon, the word authority is translated um, from two different Greek words in the Bible depending upon how it's used. The first word for th that gets translated authority is, and if I mispronounce it, sorry, dunamis, and it's the word from which we get our word dynamite. So the first kind of authority has to do with dynamite or real explosive power. But the second word that gets translated authority, which is the one here, is called akousia, and it means right to rule. And one of the ways that Evans illustrated this point, or the difference between the two, is think about a football field. There are young, strong, fast players out on the field, and they exhibit dunamis, that explosive strength and power. But there's also other people on the football field. They're referees. They're usually older, they might not be as fast, they might not be as athletic, but the referee has akousia. He has the authority to take a player out of the game by throwing a little yellow flag, and, and it's over. It's up to him to say that. That's the kind of authority Jesus is talking about here. He has been given all authority on heaven and earth. And with that authority, he's given us a command. It's not a suggestion. He doesn't preface it by saying, if this is your special talent that God has gifted you with, go and make disciples. He tells all of us, regardless of what our individual talents or skills might be, all of us are responsible for going and making disciples. Um, not a suggestion. As a disciple um, and as helping disciples, our goal should be to help people become progressively like Christ. Here at the church, and it's like I said, it's difficult in the times that we're living in now to, to meet here and do those things, but part of the goal of the church is to equip current disciples to help make new disciples and help new disciples to progress along that path. Um, in becoming progressively like Christ, that means in our character, in our conduct, um, our attitudes, and our actions. One of the phrases that, that Tony Evans used over in the 12-part series was to be a visible, verbal follower of Christ. That means people can see you, you talk about it, it's obvious by the way you act and the attitude you have that, that you are Christ followers. And if Going to make disciples in this Great Commission sounds familiar to you as a United Methodist. It's because our vision mission statement is to go and make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. That's what we're supposed to do. Not just Dave, not just your Sunday school teacher, not just someone you think might be a great Bible scholar or someone who's good at talking in front of other people. It's, it's you. It's me. It's us individually. So we've got a command that's been issued, and um, we're all kind of in various places as far as that goes, in various places in our Christian walk. Um, one of the examples given in, in one of the sermons we listened to was that, let's say, for instance, I want to leave as soon as church is over, I want to take off and walk to Terrell. It may take me a while, I go and I leave as soon as church is over, and you may decide about an hour later, you'd like to go to Terrell too, but you get in a car. Who's going to get there sooner? 
I mean, e even if I walked an hour before you, you're going to get in a car and you're going to be there in 15 or 20 minutes, long before I will. Our because you got in a mode of transportation that takes you there faster. Our Christian walk can be compared like that. Some of us are walking along on our Christian walks. Some of us may be riding a bike along on our Christian walks to go a little faster. Some of us may be driving a car on that Christian walk. Some people might even take an airplane on their Christian walk. Part of our goal on that Christian walk is to make, I think, is to make sure that wherever I'm going on this walk, I'm farther along to being that visible, verbal follower that's progressively like Christ. I'm farther along on that path than I was last year at this time. And I'm farther along on that path than I was even six months ago at this time. And six months from now, my goal should be to be even farther along than that. So I'm going to reread um, back in First uh, John, and we're going to talk about some of the stages. And think about while we're talking about these stages where you might be and where you might like to be. All right. Um, First John was written by the Apostle John. He was um, sent to an island on Patmos when he was in his 90s, I believe. He was the only disciple we believe to have lived that long into his old age. I like reading First John just because I think it, it sounds like to me like your grandpa telling you things. He, he writes in such a, a conversational kind of tone. And he starts talking about dear children and fathers and young men as someone who's been further along the road than the rest of them. He says in verse 12, again back in chapter 2, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Um, this word translated as children here is, um, refers to an infant, someone who's newly born physically. And as Christians, we've all been right there. We've all been brand new Christians, brand new Christians in the faith. We've all been. We share one thing in common. We're all forgiven by God's grace. And that's the first little group he writes to. Your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Later on in verse 13, he also addresses dear children. But it's a different word translated as children. He says at the end of verse 13, I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. This word translated children could more be um, understood a little bit better as a toddler. Think about a two-year-old. And think about what they know and what they act on. A toddler generally knows who their parents are. They can recognize who their parents are. They can't, probably can't tell you very much about them. They can tell you maybe what color my mom has. My mommy has brown hair. Or my daddy has blonde hair. They can tell you some basic facts. My kids would have said my dad is tall and my mom is not. But they could tell you basic things about their parents. Um, toddlers have to have help dressing. Toddlers have to have help eating. Um, they like picture books and stories. Um, they're dependent on their parents for getting on in the day. Um, their knowledge about their parents doesn't go much deeper than the surface. Some Christians are, are like this. We know about God. We can tell you about Bible stories. 
they finished a series just recently on the stories we knew as kids from vacation Bible school or Sunday school. And those, those are great stories. If I don't know something from those stories that I can apply in my Christian walk, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of missing the point. It's great to have the stories. They can teach us so much. But if all I know about God is stories and surface-level things, then I don't really know God very deeply. Um, I think about somebody famous, and I was trying real hard to come up with someone who young and old would recognize equally, but I had to settle for two. I could probably tell you about Michael Phelps. He's an Olympic swimmer. I can tell you about how many medals he's won, if I remember that number, but I could tell you a lot of facts about Michael Phelps. We could Google some facts about Michael Phelps. I don't know Michael Phelps. I don't, I don't know what he's like. I don't know what he spends his time doing. I don't know deep thoughts and desires that he has. I, I just know about him. Queen Elizabeth. We can watch TV shows about her. Netflix is full of them. I've watched some of them. I could tell you things about her. I could tell you things about her family, but I can't tell you what she feels in her heart. I can't tell you uh, about close relationships she has. I just know some basic facts. Toddler Christians know about God. They can tell you things about God. They know the Bible stories, but it doesn't go beyond that, and it doesn't go any deeper than that. And some Christians are, are satisfied with that kind of relationship. I, I'm not. Um, haven't always been that way. Back in Hebrews uh, chapter 5, and I'm going to start in verse 11, um, the writer says, We have much to say about this. He's talking about something a little hard to understand. But it's hard to explain it because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. I think the writer is saying here that it's okay to start out as that toddler Christian on milk and soft foods until you get some teeth, until you get your Christian teeth. But we need to graduate to solid food as a Christian and um, move on up, so to speak. We need to go beyond mere recognition of God and the basic teachings we learned as little kids in Sunday school. The next stage that John writes to, Tony Evans referred to as teenagers. John refers to it as, as young men. And I'm going to pick out those um, two pieces of verses. It says, I have written to you, young men, in verse 13, because you have overcome the evil one. And then farther down in verse 14, it says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Tony Evans refers to this as teenagers. Some of you have raised teenagers. If you haven't ever raised a teenager, you've been one. And it's characterized by nothing more, I think, than just conflict. 
there's strife and there's conflict in being a teenager and raising a teenager. Um, and part of that is teenagers are in transition. They're not a little kid anymore. They don't depend on their parents to help them dress or to help them eat. But they're still dependent for, you know, for the parents to supply their needs, a home and food and clothes. But they're struggling so much in order to be independent. And, and that's our goal for our children. We, we want them to grow up to be independent adults. But somehow we have to get them from that toddler stage to that adult stage and hopefully minimize the conflict. Um, we struggle. Uh, we have conflict as Christians and as the young men or teenage Christians, we struggle. It says in the two verse pieces that I read, it has the word overcome. Well, Jesus didn't tell us we overcame without realizing that there has to be a struggle there. We have trials and temptations and things that, that the devil throws at us. Sometimes it seems like it's constant. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. We have to practice. <coughs> I'm sorry. We have to practice through those trials in order to overcome. This book is called AHA. It's a book by Kyle Eidelman. Um, Sunday school class and I studied this one too. It's a whole lot of study of, if, if you really like the story of the prodigal son, you'll like this. That, that's the only scripture reference it gives. Very good book. But one of the things, and it, it's a little lengthy. I didn't, wasn't sure I wanted to read the whole little section, but I think it, it makes an impact. We talk about the struggles and the trials, and a lot of us wish we didn't have them. But I want to share this with you. And like I said, I, bear with me. It's a little bit long, but I think it makes an impact at the end. It says, um, the author says that he read, read about an experiment done by psychologist Jonathan Haidt, and he came up with a fascinating hypothetical exercise. So participants were handed this summary of someone's life and asked to read it over, and here it was. Jillian will be born in August, and as she grows, she will develop a learning disability that will prevent her from learning to read at the appropriate age. Due, this, due to this disability, she will struggle with school for the rest of her years as a student. Despite her best efforts, her grades will always be average. In high school, she will become best friends with a girl named Megan, they will share secrets and be nearly inseparable for much of their junior year. But Megan will be diagnosed with a rare, aggressive form of cancer, and she will pass away as their senior year begins. Jillian will mourn the loss, and her grades will suffer for it. She will attend a local community college, working and taking a job, a small course load. The two-year program will take her three and a half years to complete. And just before heading to a state school, she will be involved in a drunk driving accident. A drunk driver will hit her from behind, pushing her car into an intersection where a family of three will swerve to avoid her. They will skid off the road, hit a tree, and their youngest son will die. Though the fault isn't hers, she will blame herself for his death and spiral into deep depression. Eventually, she'll make it to a state school, finish her degree, and get a job working for a food distributor. She will love her job, and just as a promotion comes her way, an economic downturn will force the company to lay off much of their management, which now includes Jillian. In the devastated economic climate, she will struggle to get work, 
Eventually she files for bankruptcy, selling her house and moving into a small apartment to make ends meet. And though she will strive to get back on her feet, the economy will make it increasingly hard to do so, and she'll spend a few years living from month to month. She'll eventually find another job, but due to her bankruptcy and season of unemployment, she won't be able to retire the way she thought she would, nor will she ever make as much as she used to. She'll work hard into her old age, piecing her life back together. And that, that doesn't make you sad. That wasn't the point. But here's the next part of the exercise that the teacher was giving his students. Participants were asked to imagine that Jillian was their daughter. This was her unavoidable life story. She hadn't been born yet, but she would be soon, and this is where her life was headed. Participants then had five minutes to edit her story. Eraser in hand, they could eliminate whatever they wanted out of her life. And the question for the participants was, what do you erase first? Um, he talks about some of the things people might want to de delete from happening. But he says, ask yourself, is that what's best? Do we really think a privileged life of smooth sailing is going to make our kids happy? What if you erase a difficult circumstance that wakes them up to prayer? What if you erase a hardship that's going to show them how to be joyful in spite of any circumstance? What if you erase some pain and suffering that ends up being the catalyst God uses to cause their life, in their life, for them to cry out to him? What if you erase a difficult circumstance that wakes them up to God's purpose in their life? Whoa. Did you ever think of it that way before? And the, the trials that we face, the things that come up against us, the things that I, I think now as a parent, I understand I face struggles, but I never wanted to see my kids face struggles. But this is telling me that, yes, I do. Because when each of us, us or our children, face struggles, then we learn what to do in order to depend on God to help us through. And if you didn't think John didn't tell us how the young men overcome, um, he did. In the second statement where he addresses the young men, he says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you. A lot of times in other translations, that, word, that lives in you is translated abides. So as young teenage Christians, we learn to overcome by abiding in God's word. Um, I got another illustration for abide. Hang on. This is kind of cool. It's a phone charger, and it's one that I can lay down. It's not plugged in right now. But let's pretend it is. And if I put my phone on it, and it's plugged in, the little light will come on and show that it's charging. We use these all throughout the day, probably more than we ought to. The battery runs low, and we got to find a charger. We're in the car. We're at home. We're out away from all that. It's lost all its power, but once I'm able to plug it back in, it starts to charge. It starts to get power from where the power comes from. That's rather than charging, than plugging ourselves into a charger. I need to plug myself in here, in God's Word, knowing 
what it says. It's not enough just to come here on Sunday and hear it. It's really not even enough to come on Sunday and hear it and then go to Sunday school. It's not enough to come on Sunday mornings and hear it and go to Sunday school and go to a Bible study. Those things aren't enough for me to be able to abide. I've got to spend time in his word by myself, listening to what he speaks to me out of, out of his word. Um, we talked about the toddlers and how they need help feeding themselves. At some point, we would think there's something wrong with a young child who hasn't learned to feed themselves physically. That's one of the things they like to do. And you've been there. They've been in the high chair, and they want to grab everything with their hands, and the food gets everywhere in their hair and up their nose. They want to feed themselves. And they grow up to learn to use a fork and a spoon and a knife and how to have some table manners, we hope. But they do learn how to feed themselves. And if they didn't, we would think something was wrong. Little toddler baby Christians are supposed to learn to feed themselves too. I once heard a sermon from Chuck Swindoll that says, if you're getting your spiritual food on Sunday morning listening to the sermon, you're eating already digested food. That's kind of gross, but a pretty vivid illustration. If all I count on for spiritual food is is Sunday morning, and I love listening to Dave. I love being part of this church. But if that's my only spiritual food, I'm going to starve, spiritually speaking. I've got to learn to feed myself. These teenage Christians overcome the evil one. The devil keeps throwing stuff at them. And we think about how many times in our lives, and we look back at how many times stuff has been thrown at us, we wonder why does he keep coming back and throwing it at us. He wants to keep us from getting to that next stage. We can learn by abiding to overcome. If we don't learn that, Satan's just going to still keep throwing stuff. And I'm not saying he's ever going to really stop, but when I learn how to handle him by listening to what God tells me, then I can go on to the next stage. John writes the next stage to the fathers. How do you become a father? By having kids. And as a disciple, I need to graduate to that stage where I have some spiritual kids. I've got, I need to be part of that, um, bringing them along. Um, Tony Evans used the example in his sermon of a relay race. It's really important. You got, I, I like watching the Olympics. I like watching practically every event that I can see on TV. I think it's exciting. He talked about the relay race, and you know what it is. In, they do it in swimming, too. There's, there's no baton in swimming, but in the track and field, in the relay race, they're running, and one person runs their lap just as hard and fast as they can, and they got a baton, and races have been lost because the handoff isn't handled the way it's supposed to be. They're not doing what they practiced in order to hand it off. And you know, once you drop it, you're not going to catch back up. I think our Christian faith can be lost in the fact that if we're not spreading it, if we're not passing that baton, if we're not bringing some along with us and sharing what God has done for us 
in our lives, then we're going to wind up dropping the baton and not sharing it with the generation that needs to hear it so badly. And Jesus, when he was tempted in the wilderness, he used the written word at the time to combat the devil. If I don't abide, I don't know what it says. And if I don't know what it says, I can't use it. And if Jesus had to use it to defeat the devil, then who am I to think that I don't need it in order to defeat the devil? All right, last let's talk about the fathers. Fathers are, are, are adult Christians, and we become fathers because we have kids. Um, verse 13 and verse 14 at the beginning say, I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. And he repeats the same thing in verse 14. You have known him who is from the beginning. This know is a different word, know, than the one translated earlier for the, the children. It's more than that surface knowledge to know about something. This kind of know, past recognition, this kind of know implies an intimate relationship. And from the beginning implies that a period of time has passed. You don't get to be a father Christian or a parent Christian without having gone through those other two stages. Just like we all had to be teenagers Unfortunately, we all had to go through it in order to become adults. We don't get to pass through those. We don't get to skip over those stages as Christians either. We have to go through all those, all those stages. So how do, how do you know that you really know God? He tells us earlier in John chapter 2, in verse 3, he says, We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. It's, it's pretty simple. Do we, do we obey what God tells us to do? And if you don't know what God tells us to do, it's, this is it. That's part of that abiding. Do we obey? And are we obeying because, oh my gosh, I just have to do this? Or are we obeying because it's joyful and we love him and we love to do what he asks of us? There, there's, there's a difference. We've all tried to get our kids to do things before at home, and oh, do I have to? That's, that's not joyful obedience. But when you see obedience in action that's, that's a result of love, it's a totally different kind of obedience. And that's what John is telling us. We know that we know God and his love because we obey and we obey joyfully. Um... When, you're, when you were little or when your kids were little, you had little growth charts or you had a place you marked on the wall to see how tall they got. Mine, mine never got very tall, but I was always real excited in the big leaps. I did make a huge leap when I was in junior high, about four or five inches, I think, over the course of three years because I was really short when I started junior high. But having that chart is fun. It's fun to look at where I went, where I was, and where I got to. Um, I don't know exactly all the ways we can measure our faith growth and our Christian growth. I think it's important that I'm aware of it, that I'm aware that am I spending less time or more time in God's Word? That's something I can measure. Am I spending more time or less time in prayer with God? Am I spending more time or less time in fellowship with Christians who can help me grow? 
that I can help grow. It's, um, our assignment is to make disciples and lead them up and train them along and be an encouragement. Um, last week, they preached from Hebrews. Hold on. I'm not going to find the verse. We're sur- because we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we need to throw off everything that hinders us and go. That implies some forward progress. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 talks about, oh, here I'll, I'll tell you. One thing I, where did I find it? So hold on. He says, I'm sorry, in chapter 3, verse 12, not that I've already obtained all this or already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold for me. I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal. We're not supposed to stay stagnant and still in our Christian growth. We're supposed to press on. I've got a video clip Jim's going to play here in just a second that many of you may have seen it already, um, and then I'm going to kind of tie that in here with the end and be done. Um, this is Priscilla Shire. She's the daughter of Tony Evans, and this is from a message. I don't know when she gave it or what the, the basis was. Um, but Jim, if you'll play the video, please. It was the 1940s or so when there was a professor who was in England. His name was Professor Orr, O-R-R. He taught theology at a university there. He decided to take some of his theology students, this is the 1940s, he decided to take them on an excursion, a field trip, so to speak. And so he gathered up his students and he said, we're going to go visit some of the historical places here in England that have some sort of theological significance. He took them to many religious sites, some that had been very strategic in the building up of the church and in um, the Christian faith. And one of the places that they visited was the Epworth uh, Rectory, which would have been the home, the living place, the study place of one of the great reformers of the church. His name was John Wesley. John Wesley sort of put in place much of the theology upon which the church that you attend, that I attend, a lot of that foundational theology was crafted by reformers like John Wesley. So John Wesley would study, he would teach, he would preach, he would pray that revival would spread out, not only in England, but he prayed for it here in our country, that revival would break out. He and others like him ushered in, in prayer, some of the great revivals that swept through America in the early 1900s, where people in mass were coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord, where the heavens seemed to be open in an unusual way and revival broke out in a way that has made the history books that we still look back on now and recognize the fire of God's spirit that spread during that time period. It's because guys, many of them, like John Wesley, were on their knees praying that God would move. 
So these theology students went and they visited this rectory, this house where he lived, and they went in the kitchen. Professor Orr showed them all where John Wesley would have uh, eaten his uh, lunch and his dinners, where he would have cooked, where he would have lived his life there. Took him into the study where John Wesley would have studied. These theology students were enamored because, of course, some of the old books that John Wesley would have studied from, that he had written in, some of those notes they had preserved, they were still there on the desk and on the bookshelf and so the theology students were feeling the, the spines of those books, just enjoying the richness of this history. And then Professor Orr walked the students up to the second floor where the, the most intimate quarters of John Wesley would have been his bedroom, walked in the bedroom, and the students began to file around the bed in a tiny space in that bedroom. And as they all filed into the room, one of them noticed as they got around the far side of the bed that there were two um, small patches, well-worn patches in the carpet fibers of the floor. They were right next to each other and they were beside the bed. And he, he asked his professor about those patches that were worn right there beside the bed. And Professor Orr explained that it is said that those two patches were the actual places where every single morning, not for a minute or two, but for several hours on end, John Wesley would plant his knees right beside his bed. And he had prayed so long and so hard for revival that his knee had, knees had actually imprinted themselves onto the floor that the carpet fibers were, were worn as he prayed for revival. So the students stood in there for a moment. And after a few moments, they left the room. They went downstairs. They all got on the bus to go to the next location. Professor Orr stood at the front of the bus, counted the students to make sure everybody was there. And he realized one was missing. He walked back into the house, went into the kitchen to look for the student, nobody was there, went into the study to look for the student, nobody was there, walked up the stairs into the bedroom, and he could just see across the other side of the bed the head and shoulders of a student who had planted his knees down in those well-worn patches on the floor. And he could hear the student praying, do it again, Lord. Lord, would you do it again? And would you do it again with me? Professor Orr walked around the side of the bed. He put his hand on the, the shoulder of the student, and he said, it's time to go. And rising from his knees, Billy Graham went and joined the rest of the students on the bus that day. And then, God did it again. First time I saw that, I've watched it several times, it, it just impressed upon me that we have a huge responsibility to disciple others. Again, it's not the job of your preacher, it's not the job of your Sunday school teacher. It's not the job of an evangelist. It's our jobs as individuals. Through the people that we meet that cross our paths, it's our job to share the light that we have. I watched a sermon this morning that my daughter had shared with me. Matt Chandler's got a series, and this one was called Citizen of Earth, and I highly recommend it. He, um, 
It's very current. I think he preached it maybe a week or two before the election. And so it's very timely. One of the things he said was that Generation Z, that's your 20-year-olds, your 20-somethings, 90% of them don't trust that politicians will do the right thing. Our world is in a huge amount of chaos. Our state, our nation, the whole world. It seems in many ways maybe hopeless. Maybe we don't see an end. You know, God, God has not been surprised by anything that happened in 2020. We may have been surprised. We may have been disappointed. We may have been dismayed greatly. It didn't surprise God at all. But there's a community. There are people that are hurting. There are people that don't understand God's love. There are people that don't understand that there is a God that's in charge of it all. We're responsible for taking that light to them. It doesn't matter who's elected. It doesn't matter what happens to our country. One of the other things Matt Chandler mentioned is in the whole scheme of of world history, the United States is a blip. That's what he called it. Think about thousands of years. There was a Roman Empire. There was a Babylonian Empire. They were great and huge. The Egyptians, dynamic empires, and they're all gone. And one day the United States is going to be gone too. But what's been constant through history is God's people. And God's people acting when God said act. And sharing the light that we carry inside with them. I've got, um, I don't want to say a favor, but I've got an assignment or a challenge. Back when, when COVID started and Here I told Dave I didn't think I'd be able to talk long enough to last the whole service, and and here I have. Sorry. Back when this started, Dave and I chatted about ways to help keep people connected um, during this time. That's so strange. And um, about, I think, simultaneously, we came up with the same idea. And we put an announcement in the bulletin about starting prayer groups. We have two. I got to tell you, I was a little disheartened when I really only had one other person contact me about it, but we have two groups. I'm going to put the challenge out there again this morning. We have two groups. Each one has four people. Dave has three men in his group. I have three ladies in my group. I think four is an optimum number. Let me tell you why. I do Zoom on my phone, and I can see four faces at one time. If I have more than four people on Zoom, i got to do this to my phone to see everybody. So that's one reason I think four is a good number. I think four is just a nice number to have a prayer group. We meet once a week. My group meets on Sunday afternoons at 5. We have a Zoom call. We talk about prayer needs individually. We talk about prayer needs for the community or for the world, and we pray. That, that's For some people, praying in front of anybody else is kind of unnerving. But I got to tell you, I wouldn't trade this group and what we've meant to each other for anything. It's part of this growth that as Christians, we're responsible for. I've grown in ways I I don't even think I can explain or put into words. But I'm going to challenge you. Find three friends. 
get on the phone. It doesn't have to be Zoom. It can be a phone call. If you'd like to meet in person, it could be in person. But meet. Mentoring works both ways. You can be a mentor to someone else, but we need mentors too. We need Christians who are further along in their Christian walk to help guide us and encourage us just as much as we need to be that guide and encourager to someone who's not as far along as we are. Um, There's no restrictions on what you pray for. There's no restrictions on time limits. I just ask that you do it. Take a chance. Be a little bold. Do something that's a little gutsy and out of your comfort zone. And just do it. And then come back and tell me in six months, if you've been consistent with it, that it was the worst thing you've ever done. I I, I don't think you're going to tell me that. It's going to be a growth for you. It's going to be a growth opportunity for your three friends. And then, just like in the video... Praise, do it with me. We don't have to all become evangelists, but if I can encourage two friends and you can encourage two friends and then they can encourage two more, the opportunities are endless right now. People are hungry right now for Jesus Christ and his love. And I just challenge you to to be bold and like the sermon title says, grow up. Grow up and be that follower, not just a fan from the stands, but a follower of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for who you are and what you've done and that you are in charge and in control of everything. Thank you for giving us your peace and your love in a time that is um, uncertain. In your name I pray. Amen. We're glad that you chose to spend this time with us in God's Word. You can catch our worship services online at www.rmumc.net. May the Lord grant you the light of His truth as you journey through this day.